What's up, everybody? It is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly installment of Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. For a long time on this show, we have wondered why everything looks like shit. In particular, we have wondered why movies look like shit. I think we've touched on it in a few episodes, never found satisfactory answers. And then a frequent guest, Josh Bregman, sent over a great piece in N Plus One by one Will Tavlin that got to the bottom of it, I think. And we have Will here. Will, what's up? Hello, Emmett. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, man. This is really exciting. I think this is going to be a fun one because there is, uh, I mean, this, your piece here, let me read the title. Um, by the way, people, you can go check it out in the show notes, but uh, it is titled Digital Rocks, How Hollywood Killed Celluloid. And just tell me a little bit about yourself, man. Like, where do you come from? Do you come from a film background? Like, how did this yeah. all happen? Yeah, a little bit. I grew up in northern New Jersey, in Hudson County, New Jersey. And I went to like a technical high school that was very lucky to have like a TV production program. When I was there, that was that was very well funded from like federal grants and things like that. And we had like a mini studio and I would make stuff for like our, you know, high schools, like CCTV or whatever. And I did a year, I guess how I came to this was that I did a year at, it's, it's been a very long multi-year process. And I did a year at a short stint at film school before leaving, but it was there that I, I started just like meeting people a lot of my friends today who are, you know, working in the film industry and, and hearing this thing that I would hear a lot, which was, you know, by the time I got there, they had switched from using, this would have been in like 2013, they had switched entirely to using like digital cameras. They still had like celluloid courses that you could take, but you had to like go and like seek this out. But the stuff that they made freshmen do was all digital and you'd hear stuff a lot like you know from like producers or professors who or you know writers or directors who came to visit this idea that like oh like now with digital filmmaking like anyone can make a movie anyone can go out and as long as you have a good story like anyone can I would hear that a lot and it always um, bothered me because, you know, like I remember watching this interview. This was recently, this was not when I, back then, but recently this interview of Steven Spielberg interviewing like Tom Cruise back in like, I don't know, 2006 or seven. It was for one of the blockbusters that they did together. And yes, Spielberg was like, you know, oh, anyone can like go out and shoot something with like an iPhone whatever and uh, you know i was thinking like these these guys you know have never made a, a movie with an iphone or anything like that in their lives most of the people who are usually always saying this which i think is really indicative for reasons that we can maybe get get to later but anyway so I, I i always felt like that was just like that struck me as bullshit except i didn't exactly know why it was bullshit and and then it wasn't until after so then i left there and and I graduated from school and I, I've, I've had a lot of different jobs just in the publishing industry for the last number of years, fact checking and um, doing other things like that. And yeah, and it was around the start of right before the pandemic, I was talking to my roommate who's a cinematographer and I think he had like come home from some job one day where he, it was, it was, uh, it was supposed to be like a, 
shoot i think it was a commercial job and it was supposed to be on 16 millimeter and maybe some maybe the producers ended up like switching it to digital at the last minute shooting it on an alexa an ari alexa and he was just and i think they maybe did this for like cost reasons i think i'm remembering the story right mm-hmm. and and he was just complaining to me about how you know it's annoying because you know you can shoot with film for the same amount of money as digital. Like they're completely comparable. It really just depends on how you go about shooting. Um, And this kind of like blew my mind in a way, or like, I don't know, set off some kind of like alarm bells. And as the pandemic hit and, you know, there was a lot of like doomsday talk about theaters Oh yeah, and, it was the whole thing. Theaters are dead. Yeah, like yeah, theaters it. are dead. You know, Netflix's stock price went crazy. Every, it, well, I mean, you know, a ton. Netflix gains like tons of new users, and there's a lot of tech boosters in the press, like Kara Swisher, who I you know quote from, who in the piece, who you know, we're just like, oh, the end of movie theaters have arrived. Like consumers have decided. And the more I researched, I, I happen to be consumers re- have decided to lock down society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I was I was learning more about Hollywood's conversion to cellular from celluloid to digital because I I wanted to write something about it. Mm-hmm. I felt it was relevant. And, and the more I learned, the more I came to understand how, you know, the so-called decline of theaters right now is really, you know, streaming is just like a small piece of this story. And that really what it's about is studio power and the history Mm -hmm. of studio power. You know, the switch from celluloid to digital technologies, contrary to what a lot of people believe, was extremely top-down and extremely, it was basically decided by the studios who forced theaters to convert first. And then that had a downstream effect of, of spiking film costs. And a lot of studios started shooting with digital thereafter. And the more I learned about it, uh, the more I, yeah, came to just realize how this transition was very much a part of what's happening today in the, mm-hmm. in the film industry and, and this landscape. And the way it is talked about, however, in the mainstream press is really, I think, misleading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, so much of your piece. So, I mean, first off, it seemed like, you know, the film industry goes through several phases, a lot of this has to do with how monopolies have generally shook out in American history over the 20th century, whether it's big electrical utilities or, you know, the major movie houses. By the middle of the 20th century, there was a lot of forced unbundling. So you couldn't have like the vertically integrated, we make the movie, we bring it to the theater, we have we have total control over that, like that whole thing. That had to all right. get... Uh, like unbundled, as I said. But what I really valued about your piece is that it really pointed out, I think now there's a really bad hangover where most of us are going through, Kara Swisher maybe aside, of the promises of what the web we're going to be and what digital life is going to be. And then the insanely centralized bureaucratic top-down reality that has actually come about. It did not, in fact democratize the means of production or anything like that, right? Instead, it created a deeper 
more intractable level of control as we've departed from analog technologies. I think like guys like Ivan Illich talk about it, things like this, they would say it goes from being convivial to human freedom <laughs> and then towards non-convivial and from analog to digital is sort of like the, from the transistor to the semiconductor. You know, mm -hmm. we, it's, it's harder to fix these things. So let's get into that a little bit. What was the myth like as it was sold to us and who sold it and why? Yeah, well, there's a lot of, I mean, there's so many players in this realm. And yeah, that's a very good way of summing it up. One of the, the person that I focused the most on in the piece, besides the digital cinema initiative, which was, you know, the collaboration between the studios was, was George Lucas, who is very like, was both an advocate, a very powerful advocate of digital technologies himself, but also I think representative of like what a lot of boosters of digital were saying at the time, you know, people like um, Peter Jackson, but also James Cameron, a lot of blockbuster directors. Which is, I just um, want to say, it's a shame for Peter Jackson as somebody who's a big fan of his very early work. Um, uh, I see, yeah. And like the insanely funny and grotesque and fun quality of how well he had mastered practical effects mm. you know compare yeah like uh dead alive to the recent hobbit movies not content wise but just in like sheer artistry of like the visual you're getting and the guy walking through his living room using a lawnmower to cut apart zombies is way more dynamic and fascinating to watch than whatever right. the hell is going on the oscars on sunday and when they were showing clips of i forget which it might have been the fan category or something. They were showing clips from a bunch of superhero movies. I can't remember which ones exactly. I think the Spider-Man ones have come out most Yeah, recently. maybe the Spider-Man ones were where they were showing a bunch of scenes from those and uh, some other things, some you know, big action 3D blockbusters that come out recently. And yeah, I, I, I it looks like, you know, crap. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's no other it's, way to put it. It's garbage, but it allowed for, you, you talk about this, like why Lucas personally might be. So Lucas's digital journey, I mean, he was like the architect of so many different digital technologies, whether it was editing, special effects, he co-founded Pixar. And he, um, he really liked how digital technologies allowed him to manipulate things. He was very, one of the things he hated about film was like scratches and it's, it's general, like what he called it's failure. It's a, it's ability to degrade over time, for instance, which is ironic because it end, ends up turning out that, you know, celluloid or film, 35 millimeter film, which is printed on polyester prints, you know, is a way better storage and archive. Yeah, far more uh, robust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was talking to a guy for this piece who, who runs a film lab and he was saying how, you know, YCM separation masters, which is basically the gold standard for preserving films, archiving films, you know, those are printed on three 35 millimeter black and white film strips. And those might be able to last, like he said, it, maybe a thousand years like we just don't know how long they can last but it can last a really really long time digital technologies you know uh, do not last that long and you need to constantly update them and migrate them which is why it costs so much more money to do digital archiving but lucas really liked how yeah digital technologies allowed him to like manipulate images and this came through 
especially when he was doing the prequels, when he started doing the prequels in the nineties or whatever it's called now, episodes one, one through two three. and three. Yeah. yeah. And he was able to start, I think the first one was shot on film, but they were, they used a digital intermediate, which is basically they, the DI started getting used in the nineties. Um, so you, he would scan the film onto a computer and then do his coloring, what used to be called timing. This is just like an audio nerd thing. This is also the technique that Kurt Ballou from the band Converge uses when oh, he produces uh, bands as he runs uh -huh. them through the tape and then yeah. onto the digital thing. So he gets the warmth. Yeah, yeah, of the yeah. Tape. And I yeah. mean, anything that's shot on film today, you know, most things, I don't know anyone who's, you know, I haven't heard of anyone, you know, editing on a, on a Steambeck, you know, <laughs> and god knows long how long but you know they use di's but you still capture that you know they're totally you're still and and there's reasons why you know filmmakers like to shoot on film still even though they're using a di anyway so lucas was using so he would do a lot of his processing and visual effects and and, and you know digital editing and um vfx gave him this like you know crazy amount of control i i quote from him in the piece him and his editor would, you know, do things like, you know, keeping actors' eye open, eyes open if they blinked on a cut, or you know, pasting them from one scene into the other, doing all sorts of manipulation that's like really common today, especially on like Marvel movies. It's really like what Lucas was doing serves as the template for like what a lot of digital directors do today. Even mm -hmm. you know, even people like you know David Fincher. There's a great video online of what was that TV show he did? Mind Hunter. Yep. Right. For Netflix. Uh, there's yeah. The, I uh, my I, there's this incredible video on YouTube where it shows you know a side by side. I think of, I think it's Mind Hunter. I thought it was for FX, but like pre VFX and post VFX. And Fincher is known for really loving digital technologies a lot, and it's just. You know, the whole, you know, putting in trees, it's like a completely different image. No, it's that total, completely totally. changed. And that transition for him starts around when Lucas, you know, is really sort of with the digital initiative that yeah. the studios. So it's again, it, I mean, the first one that I remember is when he spends millions of dollars on the opening credits for Safe Room mm. starring Jodie Foster. And there's also an insane camera shot that like loops around the inside of the apartment that's rendered and goes through the handle of a coffee mug, you know? So he was really interested in where can I get a camera digitally where right. I couldn't physically. Right. And that's sort of his sort of thing. And you can see if, if, if you want to do like the deep lore, he gets in an argument with Brad Pitt in the Fight Club commentary about which scenes are underexposed and which scenes are not. Like, right. Throughout yeah. the whole thing. And you can sense... Fincher's frustration with the film medium itself in all yeah. of those exchanges with Pitt. Yeah, yeah, he's talked a lot about that. And there's a documentary that's not that great because I don't think it tells the story very accurately, but a documentary that was produced by Keanu Reeves back in like 2013 called Side by Side about the Hollywood's transition. And, and Fincher talks a lot about that, his frustrations there. But it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because like, you know, so on the one hand, you have people like Lucas who are saying, you know, and Lucas would always like hated the the monopolies, you know, the studios. Like he was a new Hollywood director who very much like distrusted. Yeah, he's, um, he was friends with Spielberg. He was friends with John Milius. Yeah. But they were all in school together. And he, you know, he 
to his credit, like over the course of his career, talks a lot about democratizing film distribution in the United States. And he, but he had these sort of fantastical ideas about how, you know, if everybody was using a digital camera, he gave this interview to Time Magazine, I think around like 2006 or maybe a few years earlier. He he said something like, you know, if everyone, if studio, if, if movie theaters were using digital projectors and directors were using digital cameras to make their films, like anyone, any filmmaker, nobody could just go directly to the theater and sell it directly and cut out the distributor altogether. So on the one hand, he he talks this big kind of talk about, you know, digital, and it is true that like, you know, there's these prosumer camcorders all of a sudden that make shooting really, really inexpensive. And there's a lot of directors who are doing this, independent directors in the United States and also a lot of directors abroad as well. But Lucas doesn't really make those kinds of films. And which is to say like, you know, movies that, that look like, you know, the Gleaners and I by Anya Sparta or something like that. Yeah, or he makes Blair Witch Project or whatever. Blair Witch Project or whatever. Like he is making these very high budget films. And so it's, it's indicative when he makes Attack of the Clones, which is I, the first basically Hollywood feature that was shot fully on like a digital cinema camera. And he used a very high quality digital camera for it. And he bragged, his producer bragged about how, you know, they were able to shoot and they shot, you know, millions and millions of worth, worth of uh, millions of the equivalent of millions of feet of film that they normally wouldn't have been able to get. And this saved them so much money. But the movie was still, you know, over a cost over a hundred million dollars. And, and it's there that like, I think is a very important instance of like proof that digital cameras when you're shooting at like the top level and you're trying to recreate the color depth and dynamic range and quality of 35 millimeter film that in fact you're not going to end up saving that much money your costs are just going to get moved around so yeah so that 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 is uh yeah, so, sure. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no, this is good because this is a nice bridge, right? So on the one hand, it's sold by somebody who has basically megalomaniacal control over his entire production. He can command the biggest budgets and it is sold to the little guys as this opportunity to do their own thing. Some early runners in it is the movie you mentioned, Blair Witch, a favorite of mine personally. I'm a big horror movie guy. And, but uh, th this is sort of the Adam Curtis moment of this whole thing. Where it's like, uh, and then a strange thing happens. Yeah, and then a strange thing happens. <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's not just that, uh, well, first of all, the big myth that I think your piece is related to is the idea that the digital world was going to get rid of intermediaries and middlemen. And yeah. that's part of what Lucas is offering or dreams of. And you said it's sort of yeah. like fanciful. And instead, through copywriting technologies and things like that, there is greater top-down exertion over what theaters can play and for how long that is reminiscent of the early monopolistic model of the beginning of films like mainstream success in America in the early 20th century. And it creates a level of power over the image that ameliorates any need for aesthetic discipline or intent. And that is the thing that I think is so like murderously boring 
about mm. even major blockbusters now, right? There's the famous uh, Every Frame of Painting that compares Kurosawa to the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so brutal <laughs> to yeah. watch the dynamism of the Kurosawa. And then to see like Samuel L. Jackson standing in a room with Scarlett Johansson and they're clearly in an entirely green screened room that could be a set, it's just not. And yeah, there's no dynamism to it, but the promise of the unmitigated quote unquote freedom of doing that when you have a huge budget is that you don't have to make aesthetic choices. You can just put famous people in a room and then paint that room behind them and call it a day. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is like what Marvel's, you know, Kevin Fahey is known yeah. for doing a lot of is really controlling how how pictures look on set. And something that I write a little bit about in the piece is about how on a lot of digital productions at the top level, you know, what happens is is that there is a reliance on fixing things in post, you know, this attitude of we can fix that in post. And the there's a great interview with Dave, uh, David Diliberto, who's a, he's a filmmaker and does, he's done a lot of post, he's the post-production supervisor for a bunch of the Coen movies, Coen brother movies. He was interviewing Roger, he was getting interviewed by Roger Deakins on his podcast. And he was talking about how this exact problem. And um, the, the thing that he was, the other thing that he mentioned is like, this is also how you get like outright mistakes like you know the starbucks coffee cup on game of thrones for instance mm-hmm. or the the getty image watermark getting left behind on that newspaper photo in mank i'm not sure if you saw that on twitter <laughs> that's that amazing out. oh man yeah, they, or, they forgot to they forgot to clear the rights sorry yeah we're, yeah or the thing that you bring up in your piece is that when lucas goes back to retouch the original star wars movies i guess episodes four five and six now I'm not a Star Wars guy. You know, he puts in all sorts of rocks, but then doesn't do that continuously throughout it so yeah. that it creates continuity issues in what he thought yeah, was enhancing yeah. the stakes or clarity of the image that he was presenting to the audience. Yeah, and, and he ends up just making it worse. And yeah, it's it's hard to imagine this kind of stuff. I mean, to my knowledge, I've watched a lot of older movies and you you don't see these kinds of errors in like you know a fritz lang or a howard hawks film or or something like that it's and yeah it's hard to imagine samuel peckinpah being like yeah that's fine <laughs> yeah yeah I, and there's so there's so there's a lot of people i talk to and and who i quote from some of some of whom i quote from in the piece this ended up playing a smaller role than i originally thought it was going to be but you know uh, about how film engenders a kind of economy and focus on set. This is something that Darius Martyr has talked about in interviews also that forces people to be more on their toes. There's like the saying, you know, that the, the war of the, the 35 mil, millimeter camera reel, you know, whirring on set is the sound of money burning. And that can really, you know, get people focused if you if you feel like you know there's a there's a lot more at stake basically yeah Yeah. but this doesn't just impact the visual medium as we've said here i mean i've told i told you before we started recording i live in la so like there is no marvel franchise part portion that i am not made painfully aware of 
in the months leading up to its release. You know, yeah, I want to go buy burritos. I'm standing under their newest billboard. For, right, you know, right. You know, whatever. Yeah. I want to drive to the gym, anything like that. It's all being shoved down our throats all the time. I know every single Netflix thing that's going to come out without even using my computer. I just walk down the yeah. street. So it's just, yeah. it's all here. It's hypersaturated. And the other thing that I have realized, and I was very touched that you talked to a projectionist from Wheaton, Illinois, because I grew up nearby. I was just like, I think I've actually been to that theater. But is, is what this has done to the theater and movie going experience. So I was wondering if you could like walk us through how the digital top down stranglehold ended up impacting projectionists and also audiences. Yeah. So to talk about this, this story, I talk a lot about the history of blockbusters in the piece because, you know, the story of, of what's happening to theaters now is the story of distribution and, you know, the, the invention of the blockbuster is one of the most important parts of the history of distribution in Hollywood. Um, and I guess the place to start would be, you know, for those who didn't know, you know, once upon a time in the early 20th century, the majors in Hollywood were able to own theaters and be completely vertically integrate, integrated entities. And that was until 1948 when the Supreme Court basically forced the majors to sign the Paramount Consent Decrees, which basically forced studios to to disown to sell off their movie theaters that they owned and also to no longer do this practice of block booking which is where they would like force theaters to take their most popular films alongside their you know b movies for instance and this coincided with also the collapse of the studio system which had a lot to do with competition from both abroad and countries rebuilding their film industries out of the rubble of World War, II, World War II, but also most importantly, television. And the to skip over like several decades, which is a lot happens in that time, you know, the, the answer that Hollywood finds basically to to cure their financial woes is the blockbuster in 1975 with Jaws. And one of the reasons uh, this is Jaws is so innovative is because of its saturation release model, where they would basically release it on hundreds of screens at the same time, which okay. is not how they used to distribute movies. They used to do it on a platform basis, where you start in smaller markets and or large markets and slowly grow outwards. So you had these movies, these blockbusters, which would get a lot of people in through the door basically all at once. They tended to have, I mean, Jaws had, was in theaters for a very long time, but the blockbusters that followed it tended to be in theaters for um, a very short amount of time. Audiences would tail off very quickly. And this was advantageous to the distributors because of the way contracts between exhibitors and distributors worked where the longer a film, they basically worked on a sliding scale in the profit sharing agreement so that the longer a film played, the more money a movie theater got to keep. So if a movie was like basically getting dropped like a bomb and getting tons and tons of people through the door for only two weeks, the distributor would end up in the end keeping 
a much higher percentage of the total box office gross. And around this time, you know, you have some exhibitor chains like AMC who want to take advantage of this model and start building out what used to be, you know, single or two screen theaters into three, four, you know, six, eventually 10 screen theaters, eventually, you know, by the 90s, like 20 to 25 screen theaters. Yeah, the multiplex, um, man. That was the multiplex. The, I mean, I, multiplex. I'm old enough now to remember that plexing was a thing. Yeah. You'd buy one ticket, like basically write down on your hand the schedule of movies. And then yeah. like right when the credits would go, you'd jump into the next movie. Right, right. Yeah. And so you have the multiplex. And the, the multiplex, basically the exhibitor chains were taking advantage of economies of scale and doing like a high growth model where a few, they did a few things. So one of those things was that a lot of these exhibitor chains would build new theaters by first doing something. They would basically purchase the land, the undeveloped land, and then sell it sell it back to real estate developers who would, you know, develop it into malls or, you know, big, these big concrete asphalt parks. Um, and they would sell it to real estate developers who would develop the land and, and, and then lease and, and the theater. And then, and then basically give the AMC like a long-term and lock them into a long-term lease. So basically AMC was allowed to, you know, expand with pretty low overhead, but they didn't actually own the land underneath their feet whatever, however you want to say it, which um, of course turned out to be very, this came to bite these theater chains in the ass when a pandemic rolls around and suddenly, you know, they don't have any people, (laughs) they can't make rent, which is why like there's some independent theaters around the country who actually own the land underneath of them who have fared, you know, better basically. Anyway, so that, that's one of the ways that they expanded. The other, the other thing that they did, so if you have, you know, a 20 screen theater, the old um, way of projecting a movie was you had reel to reel projection where you would, you have two 35 millimeter film projectors side by side, basically in the booth. And the film would come from the distributors in like maybe six cans. And you would put the first reel onto one projector. And then while that was going, load the second reel onto the second projector. And then once you see, once you hit your mark, when you switch over, basically, when one reel ends, you switch to the other. And then you load in the next uh, reel and you repeat the process until the film is over. But if you have 25 screens, you'll have to get like 25 projectionists to operate them because reel-to-reel projection required a lot of attention. It was it, mm-hmm. very difficult to operate more than one at the same time. And so they you, basically, the theater chains use this new technology called platter projection, which is where you would have this like 300 steel platter, horizontal steel platter, 300 pound steel platter, sometimes aluminum, and you would stitch the six reels or whatever, how many, however many reels it was onto the single platter before the movie started. Sometimes the, usually the night before. And you would project it, the, it was an automated system. So you, there were basically no changeovers and you could do a process which was called interlocking where you would send the film that was on the platter across one projector 
in one auditorium. And then you could put it through the wall and have it project into another auditorium. Uh, Which and, is like, this is sort of like the, the fragile supply chain version of doing the multiplex thing. Yeah. <laughs> as you point out, like, you know, these things get scratched as they're coming through and come out the other side. Yeah. Ruined. So, like, it is not an easy process to get this level right. of simultaneity so, with the medium. So the, the upshot for the exhibitor owners, the CEOs of these big chains like AMC, is that, you know, you could have 25 screens in a theater and basically have one projectionist oversee everything. The downside for audiences and basically everybody else was that, as you mentioned, like platter systems are known for basically just destroying prints because you're constantly takes, taking prints, putting them together, taking them apart. Film, when, when projecting, does not want to be laid down horizontally. That's just, it's, you have a lot more problems when that happens. You can get like things like brain wrap. I mean, you could get, if there was like one roller, if you're interlocking a print across a bunch of screens, and it's traveling this huge distance. If there's like one roller or something that's off, like if there's an emulsion, if you get an emulsion scratch, you won't be looking at the the print as it's going through. So you can get like an emulsion scratch across the entire print. I was talking to some projectionists who were telling me about like interlocked film prints that would be run over like popcorn machines, you know, like into the lobby. I mean, just <laughs> oh so God. many, so many things, so many awful things can happen. And if you have one projectionist overseeing, you know, 20 screens at once, that also means that the, the projection in each auditorium is not going to be as precise. There's going to be, you know, the image, the focus might be soft. The sound levels might be off. Who knows? Um, and so it was during this time, like it's really multiplexes where the quality of prints really degrades and for which like, crappy quality prints like it's really in the multiplex where that happens which is ironic because a lot of these people like James Cameron and George Lucas you know they hated how scratched their films would get even though it was exactly their films that gave rise to the the model of exhibition mm -hmm. that was known for damaging prints whereas you know there are prints that are 100 years old from the 20s um, that have you know only been put on reel-to-reel -reel projectors that still look fantastic. And the reason is because you have like one projectionist overseeing that one screening and, and they can really take care of the print in the way that it needs to be taken care of. It's an artisan's practice. Yes, That's yeah, right? yeah. And so as they, I mean, so then it's sort of clear here what the boom digitalization is for the multiplex model because it cuts out the need for the projectionist allegedly yes. and and you can just sort of like load these things into the computer and show them and the way that the studio locks that process down is yeah. they create basically like dsm type software where yeah. you can't you have to use this specific machine that's highly fragile highly expensive that cooperates with this software that is our patented software and you can only run these films on that and it creates like tragic film experience, like archival problems for mm. keeping cult cultural continuity, which to yeah. me is like one of the major threats that all culture experiences now is mm -hmm. a lack of continuity. And so the 
I said this on Twitter, the example that almost made me cry was your paragraph about this projectionist who's trying to show Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, which as you point out, like Lyndon was steadfast. He was meticulous in how he put that film together. He used candle lighting. I think he even wrote like a letter to projectionists about what they needed to do to make that film look its best. And the guy like can't get the Blu-ray, the Blu-ray looks like shit. The guy can't get his like hands on the right software or whatever. And so he just like goes to the library or something like checks out a DVD and the aspect ratio is off and it's all digitalized. So it looks pixelated. And that's yeah. like, how could you endure that movie which is very yeah. slow without yeah. the sort of warmth and level of visual detail that is its grandeur? You can't, yeah. that's the answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you mentioned letter to projectionists and well, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's just, that was a very common thing. You, there's forums online where there's lots of people who used to work as projectionists. You just search like director's projectionist letter. There's like, you know, you can read like Kubrick's bill. There's people who have compiled, you know, all directors from all over. And, and that was a common practice because, you know, the projectionist was basically like the last line of not defense but like you could sink millions of dollars into a film and spend you know years of your life on something and then if it's not projected properly it's basically all for nothing you know with the projector so that was a common thing and as you said like it was very appealing for theaters for them to to switch to digital because they no longer needed you know, the projectionists and their union. And it was obviously the best for the distributors who were saving like 90% in postal costs from, you know, not having to ship these big cans of film anymore. And they would basically just send a hard drive and something else I was no. going to add by yeah, but I mean, this, this creates, oh, if you bring it back to the archive, this creates like, so rather than having like, let's say the continuity or the cultural archive of things we inherit from our forebears, and that's part of how we critique or sustain elements of our culture, you know, sometimes those are the same thing. It's basically how we try to understand ourselves and anchor ourselves in time, right? <laughs> like that's, that's how that works. There is another problem which we touched on at the beginning, which is how we're supposed to maintain the digital archive. That's the material type of archive, you know, and that seems very uh, finicky and unclear and basically has held to none of the promises that were offered. Yeah, Lucas, yeah. I mean, all these directors, you know, had basically thought that, oh, the digital image stays the same. It lasts forever doesn't degrade like it does on film. The, the Academy put out their first report about this in 2007 as digital technologies were starting to be adopted and as it became clear that the, the industry was probably going to go digital, that digital archiving is really a lot more, it's a much more involved process than archiving 35 millimeter film. Digital assets need to, they're the, first of all, the storage parts that, you know, things like hard drives or LTO tape doesn't last nearly as long as 35 millimeter film. So there's, a, you need to be constantly migrating it, but then there's also software and hardware obsolescence. Digital technologies are just more sensitive to, you know, certain kinds of damage, whether it's electrical or 
or environmental damage, basically. And yeah, they put out some ridiculous statistics about, I mean, they're almost mind-blowing how much more expensive it is to archive a digital master compared to a 35 millimeter film print. And basically the distributor's solution to this problem is that they keep on archiving, they keep on creating YCM separation masters, which I mentioned earlier, for all of the films that they make, which is that process of basically uh, printing a film's uh, yellow cyan and magenta elements onto three 35 millimeter black and white film strips. And this, so they continue to do this to this day because there has been no technology that's been developed that can recreate the, the durability of of film over time. But as they wrote in about in a sequel report published in 2012, uh, you know, independent filmmakers can't afford YCM separation masters. They're very expensive not. to do. Yeah. They cost, I mean, one film lab I talked to estimated costs around $100,000 per print. And, you know, independence, archiving has always been like not a huge concern to independent filmmakers like over history. But the advantage of, of film is that like, you know, if you're an independent who's looking for a distributor for your film, you can archive your negatives by just like throwing them into a mini fridge. And the study, the report that the Academy found basically said that it polled a bunch of independent filmmakers in the US and just found that, you know, they were resolutely failing to meet any kind of archiving standards yep. whatsoever with digital technologies. And so yeah, there, I think there is like a question of, of will we still have the, the rich archive of films that we have from history, which already is like not as much as it should be, you know, 100 years in the future. There's a documentary, I forget what it's called, Dawson City Frozen Time, that was basically about this trove of old film prints that was found in like way up north in Canada, like underneath a gymnasium or something that had Whoa. basically just been like, like, frozen essentially and they were in great condition and uh there was yeah 533 reels of film in Dawson City they were sealed beneath a swimming and I think there was like a bunch of lost film prints that was like found from this but anyway it's impossible to imagine something like this happening with with digital technologies if if those are like the only medium that people are archiving things on because you know in a hundred years even several decades, it just becomes more and more difficult to access those um, yeah. original files, basically. I mean, and I, I put it like this. So we've done, this show likes to do a little bit of material coverage and a little bit of cultural coverage. So people who've been listening to Exhaust for a while will be familiar with the older episodes we've done with Meredith Angwin and some of the work we've done on what happens to the electricity grid. If we think about storing these things as storing them electrically that's what you're doing you know that's what the digital world is it's electric if you're looking at places especially like california that has increasingly fragilized its grid over the last three or four decades then you're looking at like the pure material crisis of the archive for things like film that's a big deal like culturally, like maybe we don't want every Netflix show to be archived. Maybe we don't want most of them to exist, but you don't get to pick and choose what you lose in this scenario. 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what was so startling to me about your piece is that what I felt I was reading was the degradation of history through financialization, elite control. And I think, you know, I consider myself a patriot, but I will say like a certain sort of like American disregard for the past. Mm. And these things have sort of braided together for this aesthetic and archival crisis we're facing right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the I the film, I think what's become clear to me in writing this piece is that, you know, studios have basically zero regard for the cinema as an art or like care for its history. And yeah, that instance with Bill Hill was like a great example of uh, basically what happened it was in like, I think it was 2011 for the Savannah Film Festival. This projectionist I talked to was supposed to screen, I was supposed to show um, Barry Lyndon. And as you mentioned already, Warner Brothers refused to give them the, the print. They offered a Blu-ray instead, but the Blu-ray was in the wrong aspect ratio. So basically, you know, section, sections of the film were lopped off of the frame. And um, so in order to, to show it, he, he ended up like screening a standard definition DVD on like, you know, the 1200 person theater, the Lucas theater in Savannah. And I mean, the, the cinematic experiences he, in his words, was just completely lost for those people. Yeah, no. And I think that's, how do I want to say this? Like the thing that saddens me the most Right. Because on on one political level, right, it's easy to simply point the finger at the people who have their fingers on the button, right? (laughs) which are the execs, the sort of people who steward the intellectual property Valhalla that is like Marvel Studios or whatever, you know. But it's also clear to me that there is a substantial demographic of fans and viewers who share this complete disregard for the creative process and instead prefer fan service because their experience is basically cultic, which we've talked about on the show with experts in fandom studies and their relationship to it. And I think the thing that sticks out in my mind is when Scorsese, not even mentally said that the Marvel films were basically like roller coaster rides, which is like Mm -hmm. true. Like, that's not good or bad, you know, you know, if you don't want it to be, it's just like, that's what it's there for. And the response was, you don't understand the way in which Dr. Strange is a work of surrealist art. And that is like such an insane claim. If you have like exposed yourself to anything that was like the absolutely like psychotic response to World War One that Dadaism was, you know, or any of that stuff. And it showed a level of impervious to critique or intention or thoughtfulness about the medium that really worries me. Like, I know that sounds culturally elitist, but at the same time, I can't really deny that that is there and is obviously a substantial problem for anybody that wants to do serious work, especially in films. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, it's always, I, yeah, I agree with, with completely. I mean, there's, I guess, something that I like to, I think another 
important flip side though to all of this. I mean, I think my piece is a bit gloomy, but there's lots of people who do care. They're like as fractured as a lot of like cinema culture has become in the last several decades, like at least like here in New York, there's a bunch, there's a lot of great resources for celebrating film and film history and in ways that are, are you know, the complete opposite of fandom and, and Marvel movies. We have a great thing here called Screen Slate, which, you know, is basically email is a newsletter, but they also publish reviews and stuff like that. And that they send out, you know, listings for all the rep screenings in New York every single day. And there's a lot of great programming. I was just reading some of the zines that the Chicago Film Society put out over the pandemic about projection and, and film. And yeah, I, I, I think it's important to remember that like those resources exist in the world. And those are the things that I like to, you know, certain what's the real rebellion yeah right like yeah that's that's the important thing to remember right like not all hope is lost and i think if we want to figure out right like if you want to do anything you have to maintain a certain level of gratitude in life i'm pretty convinced like that's just true (laughs) you know so if we want to point to like what we should be grateful for in the midst of this crisis is that there is a self-selected informal, even though sometimes they can be formalized, uh, body of stewards. Yeah, yeah. We're not actually living through the canticle for Leibowitz moment here. And I think as people exit, this is sort of my maybe grand theory of this, as people start to exit, and this seems clear that this is going to keep happening, the larger platforms and prefer secluded digital spaces like Discord or whatever, where something that approximates the sort of gatekeeping that allows communities to exist, you know, allows people to have common values that aren't just the moderators deciding how you're going to interact. I think we'll probably see a lot more people coming together all over the country trying to figure out how to maintain this tradition in defiance of what the elites uh, are doing with art and entertainment in America. Yeah, I, 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 I liked, I, you know, I think hope, (laughs) one has to hope about these situations. You know, I, I try not to be like Pollyannish, but it is worth emphasizing that, I mean, that, you know, Hollywood actually wasn't, the studios weren't successful in killing off film. It's still used as an archival medium. It's also still, there's a lot of directors today who shoot with film. In the past year, I saw, you know, Zola, um, that film was shot on, 16 millimeter Genix Bravo, Red Rocket, the Simon Rex film. But yeah, film yeah. was shot on I think yeah, under 35 yeah, I or 16. That, I saw that on 35 in yeah. the Roxy in New York, which was surreal. Um, and yeah, also Sweet Thing, the Alexander Rockwell movie. A lot of great stuff. Like film is still uses me. I mean, there's even some not that there's you know HBO shows that are still shot on film. It's still very much alive and well. And yeah, for all the for all the doom and gloom it's you know there those those resources are out there you just have to sort of look for them i think yeah exactly and i think that that is that is our task is to be the ones that seek them out you know yeah so with that i think we'll end it there thanks so much for coming on man this was a blast maybe we can thank you for having me Emmett. i i appreciate it and uh yeah, I hope it. I hope it was informative. <laughs> yeah. All right. So everybody, Will's tr- Twitter handle and his article and all that, those will be in the show notes. Go check that out and stay safe out there. 
We'll see you next week. Get back.